0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbithanshul. Discrimination comes in many forms. Have you ever felt discriminated against because of your age? Often older Americans talk about struggling to find a job or to be promoted. Employment attorney Dan Schwartz will join us to talk about our rights in the workplace and he'll answer your questions. That's later. Now, why is it common to detest the idea of growing older? Author Ashton Applewhite says, we start to associate aging as bad when we're young. She says it's time to embrace aging, and it's one of the messages in her book, This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. She'll join us coming up. Now, speaking of aging, you've all heard of the midlife crisis. Do you feel like you're in that period of your life now? Each one of us experiences transitions in our lives. Do you believe life improves when we hit middle age? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Now my guest next believes the idea of a crisis at middle age is not quite accurate. Jonathan Rausch is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the new book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Jonathan, welcome to the show.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you, Lucy.
0: I mentioned earlier that we're all familiar with the term midlife crisis, but we may not know where that term came from. And I understand that it goes back to the 1960s. Can you give us a little bit of the history?
2: 1965, a psychoanalyst named Elliot Jakes came up with the term uh, midlife crisis. And he meant to describe that in artists and creative people, They come face-to-face with their mortality, and this kind of shocks them, and there's a big change in their work. Um, And this caught on as a popular culture meme, and it's still caught on.
0: I understand that he was also describing uh, feelings that he was feeling at the time when he um, presented this idea uh, to other uh, psychologists.
2: That I've never heard, but it might be true.
0: I think we heard that, um, read that in another uh, Atlantic article. But um, again, when he brought up this term, uh, midlife crisis, uh, how did it become popularized? Why did people embrace this term?
2: Well, there was a book by Gail Sheehy called Passages, which embraced the idea of midlife crisis, and it caught on because it has a certain resonance. A lot of people do feel restless and dissatisfied in middle age, and often, as in my case, they don't know where that's coming from because they're meeting their goals so the idea of a crisis caught on unfortunately it's not accurate
0: it's not accurate because it's something uh, that many of us encounter Uh, tell us a little bit more about how this how you believe it's more a natural stage of life
2: yeah so this is the subject of of my book the happiness curve um and it arises much more recently out of big data sets all the world over that economists have found What they've discovered is that aging all by itself, irrespective of what else is going on in your life, has an effect on your happiness, and it fights happiness until roughly midlife, and then it switches sides, and it helps you be happy after that, in late adulthood, right through to the end. But that means there's this transition period in the middle, and people's usually about their 40s, when people are in this long grinding transition. It's not a crisis at all. It's the opposite of the crisis because it's slow and it's gradual, but it seems like it's never going to end. And people feel restless, dissatisfied. They don't know why. They make mistakes in their life. Sometimes that can cause a crisis, but usually it's just a long, difficult slog. Uh,
0: when we look at this pattern uh, that many people go through, it's not something that's just seen in, in the Western world. Has this been something that's been documented uh, worldwide, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, uh, it varies in specifics and how happy people are and when the turning point is by country. But yeah, the pattern of age working against happiness until middle age and then turning around turns up not only in countries and cultures around the world, but a variant of this has also been found in chimpanzees and orangutans who are less happy in midlife than they are either before midlife or after midlife.
0: Uh, Now, when you also write uh, in an article in The Atlantic, uh, the story of the U-curve, explain that a little bit more and and where that came from, not necessarily from psychologists, but economists?
2: Yeah. There's a field that's new. It's called happiness economics. It really comes into its own only in the 2000s and and late 1990s. And they look at these huge data sets on life satisfaction. Um, Life satisfaction is not the same as like, mood or cheerfulness. They're not asking, did you smile yesterday? And how often they're asking, how satisfied are you with your life as a whole? And they looked at, they had millions of data sets, surveys all over the world. So they started looking at that data and they started controlling for everything as statisticians do. So they took out the effect of income, education, health, marriage, kids, everything like that they could think of. And then they looked at the data and they found this weird result. All by itself, age was having this effect on happiness. It was making it harder for people to be happy in middle age. Um, and that's where this is coming from. It's it's really quite recent. It's like 15 years old.
0: When did you stumble, stumble across this U-curve? And is this something that was reflective of what you were feeling in your life, Jonathan?
2: Yeah, that's where this came from for me. I'm a textbook case. When I was... 40, I started feeling this strange dissatisfaction and, and kind of feelings that I hadn't accomplished anything worthwhile in my life and, and restlessness, and I had to change things up. I figured it would go away, but it didn't. It got worse, little by little, gradually, but steadily. And then I, I knew something was really strange, because not only was I hitting all my goals in life, plus some, you know, stable relationship, great career, good health, you name it. When I was 45, I won the National Magazine Award, which for a magazine writer is the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, it's the top award in the entire profession. Well, that made me feel satisfied for about 10 days. And then all of this weird ingratitude and restlessness came back. That's when I realized that what was going on was not rational, it wasn't about my life, it was about something else. A Couple years later, a Brookings Institution economist, a colleague mentioned this U curve literature, said, you know, look what happens in middle age. I looked at that curve, Lucy, and I said, that is me. That describes my life. And sure enough, in my 50s, these feelings receded, and I've, you know, gratitude comes back. Uh, I'm a textbook case. Mm.
0: Uh, We know that uh, over time, our life expectancy uh, has changed. It also depends on on where you live. But what exactly is midlife? You mentioned at 45, you started to have uh, these feelings. But when are are most people bottoming out, so to speak?
2: The bottom for most people in the U.S. is late 40s, around the age of 50 or so, which is why the subtitle of my book is Why Life Gets Better After 50. Uh, but remember, this isn't like a sharp turning point. It's very gradually down, starting in your late mid 30s, even even early 30s, and then it's very gradually up. And that's why the crisis idea is wrong. It's not like sudden something sudden is going to happen to you, or you're going to go out and throw away your marriage and do something irresponsible. It's like in your 30s, you're going to notice it's harder to be satisfied, and you have more status anxiety, and and you're feeling more restless, and that will kind of quietly grow. But then starting in the 50s, it tends to diminish. And in fact, as we get older, right until the end of life, it becomes easier to feel grateful and satisfied.
0: This is where we live. On the phone with me, Jonathan Rauch, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of the new book, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. Uh, today, we're focusing in on the term midlife crisis. Is this something that you felt that you've experienced or know someone in your family that you believe uh, is going through uh, this tumultuous period? Uh, we all, uh, again, respond to transition differently in our lives, but you can join the conversation, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We were learning a little bit more about the U-curve, and this is something, again, that economists uh, came up with. Uh, what has been the response from psychologists, Jonathan?
2: Well, at first there was skepticism, um, but now there's a lot of cooperation and cross-fertilization. And One of the fun things about writing my book is it's really a detective story about how this this effect, this important effect of aging on happiness and very weird effect, not what you'd expect, Um, comes out of economics and then starts to inform psychology, and psychologists begin to figure out an explanation for it. And then even brain scientists get into the act, and brain scientists are figuring out how this works at the brain level. Our brains actually change as we age in ways that make us more positive and less stressed and less volatile and better at dealing with other people.
0: Uh, but you've mentioned that uh, the U curve and this idea being embraced has happened more over the last fifteen years. So, if we know that this is uh, beco- is commonplace, what kind of supports do we have? Is there emphasis on developing that in this country, Jonathan, uh, to help people um, again uh, transition?
2: What a what a great question. Um, midlife. Midlife malaise is not a me problem, it's a we problem. It gets much worse in our society because we expect that, you know, at the age of 50 we should be at the top of our game, we shouldn't need any support at all. Our parents rely on us, our kids rely on us. But who do we rely on? It turns out that midlife is a very vulnerable time because we are experiencing this transition of values from being more focused on ambition when we're young to more focused on connection when we're older. But society gives no help to people in this situation. So we need to do a lot of work to support people in middle age who are feeling this malaise. They're not depressed, they don't need a doctor, but they need outreach and support. Um, they need not to be mocked. Very often we mock people. We say, oh, you oh, Lucy must be having her midlife crisis. <laughs> well, that is totally the wrong answer.
0: So give us some examples you've written about this uh, Jonathan, about are there examples of uh, you know certain types of employers that respond uh, to this or uh, I think there was the Stanford Institute for Midlifers so to speak, uh, this idea of, of of encouraging lifelong learning, uh, helping people kind of reboot, so to speak?
2: Yeah, we've got some green shoots not too much more than that at this point, but we are starting to see civil society respond to the realities of midlife. Uh, so yeah, there's a fascinating program at Stanford, which it's a fellowship where people in midlife um, at the height of their achievement can go off for a year and study and rethink their lives in conjunction with other people like themselves and prepare for a next stage. Later in life, in the last decades, we're less focused on competition and we kind of want to give back. So an important thing to do is create avenues for people who want to back off of that hyper-competitive, status-oriented career. Stanford is doing that. Um, there's people who are talking about gap years for people in midlife. Um, there's an idea to take some money out of Social Security for a year, kind of advance that, so you can use that for, for additional education in midlife. There's... Um, informal groups like the Transition Network, a marvelous group for women in midlife and beyond who are repurposing themselves, and a whole movement called Encore Adulthood and Encore Careers, all of which are telling you what is true. It is wrong that the best is over at 50. The best is just beginning at 50.
0: This is where we live. Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Lillian's calling from Chester. Lillian, go ahead hi um i just
1: wanted to mention that midlife was the point where i sort of put down a lot of burdens and decided that the time had come for me to embark on a gender transition which obviously isn't for everyone but that process of reassessing myself rewriting who i was as a person um how the world saw me um Looking at what I valued, what I wanted to carry with me from the past, and what I wanted to start new um, was a really important way of bridging the space between my youth and post middle age. Mm-hmm.
0: Lillian, I'm curious that you said midlife was a point when you began to reassess and, and made this uh, transition. Uh, did you feel like you were uh, supported at that time, or was it, it, it was midlife the point where you thought i don't need uh, approval anymore with the decisions I choose to make?
1: It was a little bit of both. Um, I mean, I had gotten my life together in terms of family and career and you know that sort of sense of stability of The practical aspects of life and relationships and that sort of thing. And at the same time, there there was very much this sense of, I'm tired of being the person I'm expected to be when I know that I'm not. I'm going to put that down. It's too heavy to carry anymore. And I'm just going to be who I am. And I don't think I had the sort of confidence or presence of mind to do that when I was younger. I think being the age I was, and I was 40 when this all started, was a very important piece of that, being able to take my own life into my own hands in a way that I couldn't before.
0: Well, thank you, Lillian, for your call. Uh, Jonathan Roush, did you want to respond to Lillian's story, what she was saying about at the time, at 40, she felt that she was able to move forward and not have to uh, wait for others' approval. Um, she had the confidence to, to move forward where we may not feel that in our 20s, so to speak.
2: Mm. Well, of course, it's a wonderful story. Uh, and these transitions can be transformative at any age. I was 25 when I came out and acknowledged to myself and the outside world that I'm gay. And that was transformative in my life. Um, the The advice that the book has, apart from the science which we've been discussing, there's a lot of real stories about people and a lot of advice about how to get through this, this midlife transition period. And one of the more important things I came away with is... Often, midlife restlessness is a great opportunity to make necessary change, but, but here's the thing. It's a treacherous time, because sometimes it's just our age that's making us unhappy, but we're not very good at attributing the causes of our unhappiness, so we kind of thrash around, and sometimes we fix on marriage, or in my case, it was my job. There must be something wrong with my career. Well, there was nothing wrong with my career. So sometimes change is necessary at midlife or any other time, but the advice is this. Be careful at midlife. Be careful about vary the variables one at a time so you don't make a big mistake and try to avoid a huge disruption. Plan the change carefully. Make sure to consult with other people. Don't throw your life away and just suddenly up and, you know, move to something totally different. Build on your skills and knowledge. Make it logical. I call this leap. If you do that, people can harness this restlessness in midlife and make wonderful transitions.
0: And before we let you go, Jonathan, I am curious uh, we talked about how um, our life expectancy, we're all living longer, but we're also making decisions such as some of us uh, deciding to start families much later in life. How does that change this uh, U-curve, so to speak? Does it change? I,
2: I don't think it really does the you know the hardest thing to get my mind around writing this book is that the happiness you curve that's the sort of what economists call the pure effect of aging that's just what getting older is doing to you it's making it harder to be satisfied at midlife than before or after but remember your mileage will vary in Lucy's case there are many other things going on in your life that determine your happiness so you know if you get that, dream job. Uh, if you have kids, if you get divorced or married, all of these things play into it. The important thing to remember is that ticking away in the background is the effect of time. The clock is actually working on your brain, changing your happiness. Mm-hmm.
0: Jonathan Rausch, his new book uh, out May 1st, The Happiness Curve, Why Life Gets Better After 50. He's also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for your time. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalthothanchel. Coming up, does age discrimination play a part in the slump people may find themselves in? After the break, we'll hear from an author who says we all have a part to play in combating ageism. And we want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation, 860 275 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you experienced discrimination based on your age? You can join our conversation. 860 275 7266 Email us where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, why does aging get a bad rap? My next guest says we're all ageists, but we don't need to be. Ashton Applewhite's book gets into how we can break away from age discrimination. The book's called This Chair Rocks: A Manifesto Against Ageism. Ashton joins us by phone. Ashton, welcome to where we live. Thank you. So let's talk about ageism. We're uh, we're used to hearing about racism and sexism, uh, but what about ageism and how pervasive is it?
3: It, it is everywhere. Um, it is stereotyping and discrimination on the basis of age, and it is really the last uh, social prejudice to go largely unchallenged. We have this Utterly grim view of late life, uh, which I I used to feel the same way when I was in my fifties before I started this project. And when I first stumbled across the U curve that Jonathan was talking about—that people get happier as they get older—I thought they must have cornered two eighty-year-olds and given them a cookie. <laughs> and these changes, I mean, to me, they take away. Of course, is not that we are so unhappy in midlife, which everyone knows but that we get happier with age. And in ageist culture, we live in such a youth-obsessed culture that it drowns it out, framing aging as a problem, to be cured, as a disease, to be fixed. And aging is not a disease, it's not a problem. It is this powerful, natural, lifelong process that unites us all and that conveys all sorts of positive things along with the scary stuff that is real, too, that we all know about. But let's hear both sides of the story.
0: So, Ashton, where does this all begin? Where do we first uh, see this bias and how it's uh, then ingrained in us that aging is bad?
3: Well, it starts, I hate to say it, but in early childhood, around the same time, attitudes towards race and gender start to form because that's when we start to be bombarded with messages from popular culture, starting with cartoons and children's books, you know, cranky, grouchy Grandpa Simpson or the placid granny rocking in a rocking chair and not doing much else. And But kids who grow up with their grandparents and people who grow up in villages or surrounded by people of all ages don't become ageist because they understand that the mixing of generations and sharing of stories and ideas is the natural order of things, and it's the way it ought to be, you know, and that ageism in the U.S. has subverted it and cut us off from most of humanity. Hmm.
0: What about um, when we, we were talking about uh, milestones in the last segment, too, of, of when uh, many of us uh, reach certain uh, points in our lives? Uh, maybe we, it didn't drive home to us when we were younger that aging is bad. But what if you're in a situation where um, you're in your, uh, your career and uh, you have lots of different things to balance and you're also a caregiver for your aging parents? Yeah. How does that play into our um, beliefs about aging and our fears sometimes that we don't want to grow old? Because we see what our parents may be going through.
3: Well, you know, when Jonathan said it was not a me problem, it's an us problem, I would zoom that out. He's talking about how, how, um, you know, we, we all need support. I would zoom out even further to say this is a cultural problem. Caregiving is a beautiful and important part of life. What makes it hard is to go it alone without supports and a culture that refuses to acknowledge the fact that we're getting older which most of us are so unwilling to even address that and look at look at both sides of it is unlikely to address the fact that we're mortal and that none of us are are independent ever we've had this idea that I'm going to live alone and nothing's ever going to change and I'm going to not ask for help because that's shameful asking for help isn't shameful we ask for help every time we ask for change for the bus right So let's change it to an idea about interdependence all lifelong and take the shame out of it and acknowledge that those are two-way transactions, that where the helper, I mean, everyone likes to help. No one likes to receive help by the same token. No one wants to die young, and no one actually wants to be any younger. So if aging is so terrible, let's explore some of those paradoxes and look at the whole picture in all its diversity and variety.
0: So what, what led you to become an activist and an author on this, Ashton? What misperception did you have about aging that you uh, went uh, and encountered and, and by looking <laughs> at the research?
3: I was afraid of getting old. And so I started a project about older people who work and within 30 seconds encountered this U-Curve of happiness, that people get happier as they get older encountered the fact that the longer people live, the less they fear dying, encountered the fact that old people were depressed because they were old and they were going to die soon. Older people enjoy better mental health than the young or middle-aged. And so, and I realized that what was drowning out this other side of the picture was ageism, discrimination against older people. I mean, imagine what that U curve would look like if we didn't live in a society that bombarded us with messages that to age is to become incompetent and ugly and undesirable and useless and you should just shuffle off stage. Longevity is here to stay. There's a lot more oldness than there ever has been. It's here to stay. We need to adapt as individuals and as a society to take advantage of those years as best we can. And that means more opportunities for, for older people in the workforce and everywhere else.
0: I'm talking with Ashton Applewhite on where we live. She's an activist and author of This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. You can join our conversation 860 275 Before we uh, take some calls, Ashton, I wanted to ask you, you know, when we, kept, we keep talking about um, when we become older, but what is the age where people are experiencing <laughs> ageism and is it different for men and women?
3: It is different for men and women. Wonderful question. Um, We experience ageism our whole life long because it is any judgment about a person or group of people based on how old we think they are. So if you look at a young person in your office and you think, oh, I couldn't learn a thing from her or, you know, kids are like that, that is ageism. Of course, most of the prejudice in our youth-oriented society is against oldness, if you will. Um, It starts for women um in in their 20s i mean i've seen birthday cards that say like most other women my age i'm 29 years old as though you fall off some cliff at 30 uh age discrimination starts to kick in in the 30s among educated white guys in silicon valley in tech which is very ageist so think about the effects of people uh further down the food chain if you will and the messages just mount up over time which is absurd because the longer we live the more different from one another we become. The less valid any stereotype, I mean, all stereotypes are wrong, but to stereotype by age is, in, is increasingly stupid as we get older because the older you are, the less your age says about what you're interested in, what you're capable of, who you are in the world.
0: Um, there are those who say ageism is one of the most acceptable forms of discrimination. Would you agree and why is that?
3: I would say that it is the least examined because uh,
0: I think I think the
3: the baby boom of which I am dead center at 65 is um, you know and which is a, a lot more older people is this huge demographic shift that we are starting to have to come to terms with as a culture and a society and that is shifting awareness um you know in my opinion it's no more acceptable than any other kind of prejudice about something about ourselves that we cannot change it does enormous damage it pits the generations against each other which is totally stupid because the things that make a society or a workplace better to be old in are the same things that make it good for everyone else you talked about caregiving responsibilities we'll think about if there was you know subsidized caregiving and flex time in workplaces and um all these places were accessible and there was decent and affordable public transportation and preschool that helps everyone across the life course if your kid is looked after it's easier for you to stop in on your mom it's easier for your mom to look after your kid or your dad if she can get there by public transportation if she doesn't feel like driving etc cetera, etc cetera. it is a more humane and workable and profitable society for everyone
0: you can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Frank is calling from Bethany. Frank, go ahead. Hi, thank
4: you so much for taking my call. Um, I, I'm I'm uh, 45 years old, and for the last five years, I have been going from uh, filler job, part-time job to part-time job. Um, I worked for close to 20 years in professional graphics, digital graphics, and um, what I've feel like uh, I, I learned a lot from just listening to your guest and I feel like there are a lot regardless of age there's a lot of unconscious and inherent biases in our job market in our hiring our hiring manners um, I urge you to do another show on that there's a lot of bias and discrimination that's just built into the system uh, my comment is that um, I, I believe there is a lot of as your guest said, unconscious age discrimination and on the part of corporate America, there's about a little bit of conscious financial decision making, in my opinion, where I noticed they're, they, uh, the, the job uh, denials I've gotten often say they're hiring uh, people with more relevant experience, which is to me like code word for we're hiring younger people that they think are like on the cutting edge of things. Which is completely disregarding my 20 years of experience and my, my knowledge and experience.
0: Well, Frank, thank you for your call. Um, in studio with me is Dan Schwartz, employment law partner at Shipman and Goodwin in Hartford and Stanford, Connecticut, also publisher of the Connecticut Employment Law Blog. Uh, Dan, welcome to Where We Live.
5: Thank you, Lucy.
0: Nice to be here. Um, I wanted uh, to ask you to respond to Frank from uh, Bethany uh, talking about uh, how in uh, the job market, specifically in the corporate world, um, you're experiencing uh, this discrimination, feeling like they're looking for younger workers.
5: Yeah, it's really interesting to uh, uh, to see the, uh, the age discrimination law uh, sort of develop over time. You know, federal law has been around for, for decades now that Really prohibits discrimination for anyone um, over 40 years or older. Uh, state law prohibits discrimination on any basis of age. So, um, you know those those claims have been have been out there, and and I think where they have merit is is particularly where. Uh, people can show that uh, people are relying on stereotypes, you know, the, 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 the notion of you can't teach an old dog new tricks, uh, stereotypes, um, that those, if those are pervasive in the workplace, um, that's really where, uh, where the issues lie. Uh, and when you look at the individual characteristics of a person, uh, look at their individual experience, uh, what they bring to bear, um, that's when employers are on much more solid ground um, on things.
0: We also got a tweet from a listener, uh, Martin, who writes, I went for an interview at J.P. Morgan years ago and ended up spending four-plus hours there. Towards the end of the, the interviewer pulled me aside and whispered, they'll never hire you. You're too old. Uh, Martin writes, "I was 28." <laughs> <laughs> uh,
5: you know, as someone from the the Gen X generation, that that seems a, a bit depressing. Myself on on that, um, but what we we have seen is, despite the efforts to sort of eradicate it, it, it uh, I, I agree in in some ways with Ashin that it remains somewhat pervasive. You know, there was just a New York Times report last uh, winter uh, we can direct your listeners to, where they were showing that companies were using Using Facebook ads that were directed to um, individual age groups of say 25 to 35. Um, So the only people who were seeing those ads um, were younger workers. And that's just prohibited by law. It's not what uh, uh, what we should be doing. Uh, And yet uh, it still exists out there.
0: Ashton Applewhite's with us again uh, author of this chair rocks a manifesto against ageism ashton can you uh, talk a little bit more about that as well about how um, in the workplace sometimes it also works doesn't work in favor of someone who may be in their 20s who someone looks at and says well you don't ha- you're not old enough to have the experience we're looking for
3: right i mean ageism does cut both ways there is tons of research that shows that mixed age teams are the most effective which is intuitively obvious, you know, different pe- people at different ages bring different skills and experience and aptitudes to the project or to whatever it is. I mean, I'm glad that uh, that Facebook um, uh, screening of ads, you know, that is that is discrimination of the most blatant sort. And so we do have to look at our own internal bias and not let this message that that, that to age is to lose value as a human being because it's really that basic and that ugly um, you know, take hold of us because it's incredibly disheartening. I mean, I heard that in Frank's voice to be told that, that you cannot get employed simply because you have gotten really good at the thing you are seeking to continue to do. It is it, something is profoundly wrong with society at the basic level if, if experience has become a liability. I'm haunted by a quote from a technology review story about ageism in tech in which a young guy was getting Botox. He had a key interview, and he said, I can't look like I have a mortgage
0: and two little kids.
3: Mm. Something's wrong with the world where having two little kids disqualifies you for employment.
0: Uh, before I take a call, I just wanted to ask uh, Dan Schwartz, who's here, if we know there, there are uh, workplace protections, there are federal laws, there are Connecticut laws. If we know that there are laws in place, why is it still pervasive? Where are the gaps?
5: You know, I think that um, for for individuals, bringing lawsuits and raising those issues to the consciousness is difficult. No one wants to be um, be seen as the troublemaker, uh, and yet it is only by shining a light sometimes on those issues uh, that we can get to the heart of it. And, and you know, one need only look at the Me Too movement um, to show, hey, you know, hadn't we gotten rid of sexual harassment in the workplace? And and what we're finding is it's far more pervasive uh, than people wanted to acknowledge. So I think as we continue to shine a light on the on the issue uh, and raise it and, and hear the stories of people like Frank on the phone or or others, uh, to understand that we uh, we still have to eradicate this bias uh, in the workplace. You know, I think the. Uh, the ones that succeed, the companies that succeed do have that diverse workforce uh, have been bringing people back in who maybe um, are doing a second career uh, because they they want to um, and because they have the the skills to do so. So um, it, it's it's a pervasive problem that uh, needs needs more attention to it.
0: Join our conversation, eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. Jonathan's calling from Middletown. Jonathan, go ahead.
6: Uh, hello. Um, I've had experience with ageism uh, personally, and I'm concerned about how much it's becoming uh, built into the current economic status. I'm an economist and general scientist and I was a principal scientist at a mature startup in the Bay Area. Um, It was odd. I'm now 75, and at that time I was 63, 4-something, and I was about twice the age of the median of the people in the startup and probably at least 15 years older than the oldest person other than myself. Um, And came the crisis of 2008, uh, they somehow managed to have my position simply evaporate because I was, I was expensive and clients didn't want to pay for anything that wasn't kind of directly contributing to the bottom line. Um, and then at age 65 at that point, it was virtually impossible to, to find another place of professional employment uh that's just personal background but my specific concern is things that's happening ibm is a particular example they in their corporate rebound recently they have had a systematic policy of kind of constricting the opportunities of their senior very seasoned staff because they're very expensive and essentially Guiding them into involuntary early retirement and replacing them with much cheaper new tech people out of out of uh, you know not long out of school, so that a big part of ibm 's profitability has come from this intentional um, restriction of of opportunities for older people.
0: Uh, Jonathan, I'll ask uh, author Ashton Applewhite uh, to respond. Uh, The economic side of ageism, Ashton, uh, where uh, older workers who are more experienced feel like they're getting and are getting pushed out because they aren't as, uh, they are more expensive than the younger worker. Uh,
3: Well, it, for one thing, it's a fallacy that older workers take jobs away from younger workers. It's, a, it's been debunked by economists countless times. It's called the fallacy of the lump of labor. The lump of nature and amount of labor is not fixed. Greater employment among older people actually correlates to greater employment among younger people. So it's not a zero-sum thing. Uh, IBM was recently, ProPublica did a major expose of systematic, uh, ageism on, on the part of IBM. So hopefully they will get, um, the EEOC, Equal Opportunity Employment Commission will take this on as a, as a lawsuit, uh, because it is not legal and the costs are tremendous. A lot of older people don't want to work full time. So that's a way to cut down on those expenses. Um, there are also lots of innovative ways to accommodate those workers. I just read the idea that, um, Older workers could stop if, if you paid into, this is just a proposal, but if you've been paying into Social Security for 40 years, you could stop paying in. Your employer wouldn't match it. It would be a raise for you um, and, a, and a savings for the employer. There are many, many, many ways to skin this cat so that workers of all ages can remain in the workforce.
0: Uh, let's fit in one more call. Wendy from Colchester. Wendy, we have under a minute. Go ahead with your, with your comment.
3: Yes, hi. I was just calling
7: to add to the conversation. I have two sisters who are, well, my, my oldest sister is 62. My younger sister is 56. And my oldest sister, her, job, her division was eliminated in her job uh, in Norwalk. And she couldn't find a job for more than $10 an hour. And she was making around $80,000. My younger sister uh, this past year has been interviewing and interviewing for a year. And as far as I can see, to avoid the ageism accusation, what I see happening, is companies just refuse to call you back to let you know if you got the job or not. You can't point your finger at anything when they do that. You can't prove anything when they do that. And she couldn't find a job. The one she finally got is a division of another company she worked for, And she's working for them uh, getting paid what she was getting paid six jobs ago. And that's really bad.
0: Wendy, well, thank you for your comment. Uh, Before we we head to break, uh, Ashton, uh, what companies, who's pushing back on this, on, on ageism? Is there a movement growing?
3: There is absolutely a movement growing. Um, I just wrote my latest newsletter was all about that. Australia is launching a national anti-ageism campaign. The World Health Organization is launching a global anti-ageism campaign because ageism is a major issue in health. Study after study shows that people with more positive attitudes towards aging develop less dementia, walk faster, uh, heal quicker. So the way we think about aging has very tangible effects on our our mood and how our bodies function and how, as a society, we are going to take care of each other and ourselves as we all age in greater numbers. So a movement is underway. In New York, there's the radical age movement. Um, Come to my website, thischairrocks.com, and look at resources, and you'll learn about all the other people who are working in this arena doing fantastic stuff.
0: Ashton will tweet out that link at where we live. Ashton Applewhite, activist and author again of This Chair Rocks, a manifesto against ageism. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me still in the studio is Dan Schwartz. He's going to stay with us after the break. We're going to learn more about our rights in the workplace. He's an employment law partner at Shipman and Goodwin and Hartford and Stanford. Also has a blog, Connecticut Employment Law blog, and our number, 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My last guest helped us understand why ageism exists and the harm it can do. Have you experienced discrimination where you work? You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. In studio with me is, again, Dan Schwartz, employment law partner at Shipman and Goodwin in Hartford and Stanford and publisher of the Connecticut Employment Law blog. If you could uh, just briefly, Dan, explain to us how uh, the federal protections are a little bit different than what we have here in Connecticut for for, uh, employees. Yeah.
5: So uh, federal law has had this law called the uh, Age Discrimination and Employment Act, and it says that you can't be discriminated on the basis of age. But um, in order to qualify for that, uh, as I was hinting before, you have to be 40 years or older. Uh, Connecticut doesn't have that. Connecticut, in in a lot of ways, we have broader protections than federal law. And so Connecticut law just says you can't be discriminated against on the basis of age. So uh, uh, you can't discriminate in... uh, in favor of an older worker versus a younger worker uh, in Connecticut to, a, a, you know, uh, so uh, the, the, the laws change uh, f- based on federal and state, but the the core of the issue is uh, age shouldn't be a factor in your decisions.
0: We had a caller talk about uh, after the recession, what did you see in terms of uh, the amount of people contacting you related to discrimination complaints?
5: Yeah, so what we saw in the recession, if you look at the EEOC statistics, they really spiked up uh, to about 25,000 nationwide um, in 2008. Um, And that's sort of consistent when people have more difficult um, finding a job, we tend to see more claims. Um, but if you contrast that now with uh, 2017, the amount of age discrimination claims filed last year was down to about 18,000, so a drop of over uh, 20% or so. Uh, does that mean we're 20% better in, in age discrimination? Probably not. Um, but it does mean that when people can find jobs more easily, the, the unemployment rate being, being lower. Uh, people tend not to file the claims uh, as well. But what we've also been seeing is a, a sort of renewed emphasis in workplaces to training, uh, to uh, uh, making sure that compliance with the law is there. And and hopefully that's having some impact.
0: Now, what's causing companies to, um, to do that? Is it because of Me Too, which you mentioned earlier?
5: Yeah, there's no doubt that over the last uh, uh, six to nine months or so, we have seen a huge spike in the number of companies who are uh, asking us to do uh, trainings or sending their employees to trainings. Uh, and I think they're reevaluating what is the training that we're doing. Uh, I think there was a tendency uh, maybe for cost savings or otherwise of thinking that the sort of online computer push-button uh, training was good enough. And uh, what we're still finding is the uh, quote-unquote old-fashioned in-person trainings uh, where people can ask questions, where there can be some interaction, uh, has tend to be more effective. um, And uh, where there's follow-up and follow-through with companies uh, on compliance, uh, I I think we're seeing more of an impact with the training.
0: When uh, someone uh, takes the step, you mentioned there are sometimes hesitancy to um, accuse an employer of, uh, you know, violating certain workplace protections or feeling like they've been discriminated against. When they do file that claim, is there success
5: you know, uh, the, it's, it's hard to define the success. If you actually look at the EEOC statistics, um, something like 60% uh, or 70% of, of those claims are found to have no reasonable cause. Well, the flip side of that is there are still a whole bunch of claims that get settled that have some reasonable cause or some findings to them. Um, and so it, what we really see is, is a mixed bag. There are certainly those claims that continue to have merit that get filed. Um, but where that um, uh, success rate uh, is, is going to rise and fall just sometimes depends on uh, the economy and the overall uh, number of claims being filed.
0: Uh, If someone ends up leaving uh, their position because of uh, this situation, does that count against them? Are there protections so that their future employer may not know that this came about um, with accusations against their boss?
5: So, you know, lawsuits that get filed in court become public records, and that uh, can tend to be a a, um, a factor that people might say, oh, I don't really want that out there, because with computers and, and those records being publicly available, uh, it, it can be a challenge. And I've heard from people that, that have said, hey, look, I filed this claim 10 years ago. It was a bad situation. Uh, what can I do? And uh, there's, there aren't really great options for those people. You can't sort of wipe the court uh, records clean. And as we're finding, online records uh, tend to be very pervasive and long, uh, even if they're incorrect at times. So um, that's, that's the balancing act that, that people have to face.
0: Uh, when we talk about uh um, companies uh doing these trainings, uh, we assume that they have robust h r departments, but not everyone works for companies that may even have an h r person and so what recourse does someone have if they work for a very small employer and it might just be you know and if there's issues, I mean, who should they reach out to for help?
5: Yeah. You know, it's easy as an employment lawyer to say, oh, just go to HR or go to your manager. But when the manager is the one who might be uh, um – Discriminating against you—that's that's that's a challenge uh, for that person. Um, I, I think there are certainly uh, lawyers out there who uh, can help advise people. Uh, there are plenty of good, um, reputable attorneys who who do this as a life's uh, life's work. Uh, there are also referral hotlines that a lot of bar associations uh, sponsor. The Greater Hartford, uh, sorry, the Hartford County Bar Association uh, has lawyers in the Greater Hartford area who are willing to take those calls on a referral. Uh, And if you can't afford an attorney, there are legal aid um, uh, pro bono groups and the Greater Hartford Legal Aid, wonderful organizations, um, and and workers' rights uh, clinics at some various universities who will take those claims.
0: That's good to know. And Dan, before we uh, end the show, uh, we were talking a lot about ageism. Do you believe that movement's growing to, to combat age discrimination?
5: You know, I've been practicing uh, employment law for, for quite a while now. And, uh, you know, it it's, uh, as I've gotten older, uh, I sort of, you know, like, like a lot of us, I, I start to see the issue uh, differently. I Uh, I always thought my dad was old at the age that I am now. Uh, But I I think, um, you know, with the baby boom generation uh, and Gen X sort of coming now into the workplace, um, hopefully we'll see that change. I, I think it just takes time.
0: Dan Schwartz, again, Employment Law Partner at Shipman and Goodwin in Hartford and Stanford, publisher of the Connecticut Employment Law blog. Dan, thanks so much for coming in.
5: Thanks again, Lucy.
0: Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Special thanks to Kate Tularsky, Carmen Baskoff, and Kayon Wolf. Learn more about the show at wmprorg slash where we live. I'm Lucy nolpith Thanks for listening.